SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to our Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined, as always, by Guy Adami. Yo. Yo. And, and of course... (laughs) EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She is the head market strategist at SoFi. Uh, Liz, welcome Monday morning. Buenos dias. You know, it's funny, guy. I don't know if you caught this. All weekend long, you and I are doing yeoman's work in our group chat about what we're going to talk about on the Monday pod, right? We're putting some kind of story links, that sort of thing. And Liz, at one point in this (laughs) fine long weekend, I think it was Friday (laughs) afternoon, basically gave us the Heisman, whatever that emoji might be, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and basically said, hey, listen, I got friends in town. I'm going to be drinking champagne all weekend. I'll talk to you guys on Sunday night. Yeah, I did. Sorry, not sorry. That guy, what was your take on that? No, I think that's first of all, I love that. I think it's fantastic. The weekends are for what is that old commercial? Let it be low and brow type of thing. Remember that whole thing? Yeah. Let's just put it that way. I had a good Friday. And you know what, guy? I went to a birthday party on Saturday for that friend of mine who you love. Stop it. Amanda. Yep. Yep. Edgy. Very edgy. Some of us had a lot of fun. We hope you guys all enjoyed your holiday celebrations here. Um, we got a lot to cover this week. Um, we were out on Friday. Markets were closed for the all-important March jobs report. We're going to talk about that. Liz, you had a fire tweet out. Not really. I'm oh. just saying that. We just oh. retweeted it and we thought it was hot. Um, and then we also have a lot of economic data. We have a really important CPI print uh, this week. We have some consumer data. And then we end the week with some, I think, some important uh, earnings from the banks here. It's going to get uh, earnings season kicked off. And we also want to hit a couple um, reports that we've seen as Samsung and Taiwan Semi about some of their Q1 data. And of course, there is um, a pre-earnings um, take on Apple or really, uh, you know, uh, computer shipments across the board. But Apple's were down more than all of their competitors, down about 40%. At least that's what IDC is reporting. So we're going to hit 
all of that. All right, Liz, where do you want to start here with the jobs report? Because before, I'm assuming you weren't drinking mimosas at 8.30 on no, Friday as the March jobs report came out. What was your take? Um, and you had, uh, really, you were focused on the bond market's um, take on the jobs report. Yeah, well, the markets weren't open on Friday, so it was sort of this anticlimactic report. The The data itself was sort of a nothing burger, which is what I tweeted on Friday about it. It, it wasn't anywhere far off of expectations, didn't shock anybody. Unemployment rate actually went down a tick, but number of jobs added came in right around consensus, which honestly, I don't think the market would have had a very positive reaction to a disappointment or a beat. I think it would have been a bad reaction either way. So the best we could have hoped for market-wise was kind of a consensus report, which is largely what we got. However, what you're seeing now as we record this, which is at about 10 a.m., on Monday, the NASDAQ is down 1.2% right now. Dow is marginally up flattish, but yields have risen. And the two-year and the 10-year yields have risen and rate hike expectations have gone up for May. So as we all know, the rate hike expectations and the odds have swung wildly over the last few weeks uh, through the whole month, really, of, of March and most of April so far. But here we are back to about 68 to 70% odds of a hike in May. The only reason that they would have changed that much is because of the jobs report. So it's possible that we get another hike. I am really on the side that I think they're done. I think that there's going to be stress in April that's going to convince them to either pause or just be done entirely. But the market continues to not be so sure about that. It's pretty amazing. The, again, you know, now all the pundits are talking about bond market volatility. I saw it this morning on Squawk Box as well. Everybody's alluding to it. You look at the TLT, which is obviously one of the ways you can trade uh, interest rates. Every time the TLT has gotten up to sort of 109.5 since December of last year, it's failed. It's happened about two and a half, three different times. I mentioned a half because there was a brief period in February. But you know, every time it stalls there and TLT starts going back down, it means rates continue to go higher. So just technically against the TLT, you know, rates going higher, I guess, makes sense. But then the question, Dan, you have to ask yourself again, are higher rates a good thing? I mean, you know, everybody thinks, seems to think lower rates are a good thing. I'm not quite certain any move in interest rates at this point is all that constructive because the bond market is still trying to figure out what the equity market seems to think they already understand. Yeah, you've been on that um, for a very long time. And it's funny, I think it sounded counterintuitive to a lot of people or talking out of both sides of your mouth. That's not something that I felt, um, but it's you know, normally if, if there was a pundit or um, a market participant talking the way you were about rates once we got, you know, the two year above 5% and the 10 year, you know, well above 4%, despite Fed funds not being, you know, near that 5% range, you were saying from that point on, okay, if yields go up material, it's going to be really bad for the economy and really bad for the stock market. And if they go down too much, too quickly, it's also going to be the same thing. So I think to your point, stability at this point would make a lot of sense. And, and Liz, to your point about what it means for the Fed and their rate decision, our friend Peter Bookvar over at Bleakley Advisors in his book report this morning had a really good comment and um, about the report. So he's basically saying Friday's payroll report should not be tilting the Fed's May decision to a rate hike, as I'm hearing many say the survey period ended May, March 12th, just a few days after the SVB went down and the ripple effect was uh, just starting to filter through the entire banking system. Therefore, Friday's report for March should be viewed as mostly pre-SVB. And this is really, I think, the most important point. Look at things that have happened since, like the last few days of higher jobless claims than we had originally thought 
also, did you see the CNI loan data last week? Okay. And so like, this is really um, important that, so that's um, commercial and industrial loans. I mean, they're kind of falling off a cliff. Let's talk to us a little bit about that because again, this really speaks to the fact you can look at where Fed funds is. You can look at what the rates that are attached to it are, but the lag effect, how they work through the economy is really the thing about what we should be most focused on, like when that recession is likely to come. Because again, it wasn't going to be like we were going to be in a recession when the two-year yield got mm-hmm. to 5% or Fed funds finally got above 5%. There's going to be all these knock-on effects, which are really hard to predict. Yeah. Well, so first of all, there's a lag defect in the mm-hmm. jobs market too. So He's right. The The survey happened right around when SVB failed, so we wouldn't expect it to come through, but you wouldn't expect it to come through two or three weeks later yet either. Mm-hmm. You have to look at things like jolts first, and jolts this month came in. So that's the openings, job that's openings. That's yeah. job openings. And I've long expected, as many have, that jolts should come down mm-hmm. and show weakness first. Basically, companies saying, you know what, we're not going to hire that many people, so they're going to reduce the number of jobs that are open before they actually have to cut employees, which is what would show up in NFP and initial jobless claims and so on and so forth. Also, everybody keep in mind, there are warning periods in all the states Every law is different, but there's a warning period. If you're going to lay somebody off, you can't just tell them that day. You have There has to be a warning period. There's sort of this transitional period. So even when stress happens, it's not as if companies go out the next day and say, okay, we're, we're cutting, you know, 5,000 people from the workforce and that we're going to we're going to get these jobless claims that show up immediately. There's a lag defect there too, but it is starting to show up in the JOLTS data. It was one of the weakest JOLTS reports that we've had since 2020. So keep that in mind. The lagged effect on rates is absolutely starting to show up in things like commercial real estate, as we've heard about. I know we're going to talk about some of those headlines, but there were headlines, I think, a couple months ago. We had some of the first big defaults that happened in commercial real estate, Mm -hmm. which ended up being kind of the canary in the coal mine. We're going to see that pick up. And this also is going to affect when we look at spreads in investment grade bonds, you look at high yield spreads, there's a lot of refinancing that's going to have to happen in the corporate space, not just real estate, over the next 12 to 24 months, it's all going to have to be refinanced. Yeah. So Guy, before we get your take on this, there was an article in Bloomberg uh, over the weekend, a one and a half trillion dollar wall of debt is looming for U.S. commercial properties. Um, And so that's, I think, what you're speaking of. And they're going to be front end loaded. It was a great article. We'll put that um, in the show notes. Um, But then there was also, to your point about the canary in the coal mine, here was an article from The Real Deal. Blackstone takes 36% loss on a Santa Ana office space while they didn't disclose um, the price, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, like, so this is the sort of stuff we're seeing. And then obviously that Blackstone B-Read, they put up Gates um, in October, I think it was in November, we were kind of talking about it um, back then. And Blackstone's really been heavy um, over the last few weeks, especially since the SVB thing. So these are the next shoes to drop. Mm-hmm. And then there, there are some out there, guy, who are saying, listen, this is like, this is just normal cycle stuff or whatever. Um, are, are, or we, should we be paying attention to this very well, closely. It's, well, normal cycles. If, if there was anything normal about you know our economy over the last 20 years, I would say you're right. The problem is normal cycle stuff has now been magnified by probably tenfold given the amount of liquidity that was floating around the system for so long. So things that would have been normal in normal circumstances and sort of pedestrian and run of the mill, I think are going to be five to 10 times worse given all the, and I'll, I'll use the word, you know, leverage in the system that liquidity created. And, you know, you'd mentioned Blackstone 
probably over a year and a half or so ago. Watch out, people. You know, Blackstone, if the if housing starts to turn, the economy starts to turn, Blackstone's not going to be sort of immune from that. And that proved to be extraordinarily prescient. We had Joe Zidel on Fast Money probably, again, a year and a half, two years ago, and effectively talking their book, which they should do. But you sort of called bullshit on that. Well, proved to it, be right. It, and well, and I, the, I bring it up because Blackstone, if you think about it, go back and look at the stock. Yeah. I mean, that was the poster child for everything is turning, you know, coming up roses. And now when things are going the other way, to your earlier point, if they didn't have the gates up, I mean, there would have been effectively, and I'm using air quotes now, a run on the bank at Blackstone. Yeah, you know, and just to be clear, I think the Joe Zidel, when he came on and he was talking about how he wasn't particularly worried about commercial real estate, I think it was about a year ago. Um, and I think that you and I both had our kind of antennas up. And I think we said right afterwards, um, you know, they're kind of talking their book a little bit, which you would expect them to do. But I think it's really important when you talk about the price action of the stock. Okay, pre-pandemic, the stock in February of 2020 was about $65 and it sold off. Um, it got cut in half, okay, to the lows in, in, you know, three months or something like that. And again, you might have expected that given what we didn't know about the global economy and, you know, like at the at the time, you know, there was real fears of like some sort of credit contagion if we were really going to be shut down, that sort of thing. From its lows, it went from $33, okay, in late March of 2020 to highs of basically $150, okay, it, you know, when the Fed, I mean, it literally topped out, guy, um, on the date that the Fed basically said that they are going to start thinking about mm -hmm. raising interest rates to battle inflation. So it got to 150 And the chart, if you just took off the axes, it looked kind of like SVB. Like it was the post, I think you just used the term, the poster child for whatever, you know, like just, you know, 15 years of zero rate interest for poly, all that sort of stuff and all the enthusiasm about what was going to happen after the pandemic. So Liz, when we talk about some of these things and we talk about poster children, I know that you don't kind of talk about single stocks. I mean, this is a really great example, though. Sometimes just looking at a parabolic move in a stock or some sort of security can just tell you about irrational exuberance. Trying to pick a top on that is really hard, right? And trust me, yeah. as a trader, I know that really well, but it's one of the reasons why we track sentiment data really closely, why we look at a lot of charts. This is a lot of the stuff yeah. that we do on our market call, which you are also our co-host on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. So find it in the Risk Reversal Media YouTube site, right, Guy? What should they do there when they get there? Smash the shit out of the like button. Yeah. And they should also <laughs> probably, if they so, haven't yet, and I don't know what they're doing. First of all, you got to follow EY on Twitter. But you also have to follow us on the YouTube channel, which you can get at your favorite podcast store. Yeah. Back to you. All right. So Liz, like so to the the point about parabolic charts, when yeah. you see that sort of yeah. behavior, it, it it should get antennas up, correct? Sure. And as a strategist, there are a lot of strategists who will try to call tops and bottoms and they have year end targets because they have to. I don't know that there really is anybody out there who loves having to do that. But I won't try to do either. However, what I do try to do is feel when things are getting a little bit toppy or when they're getting a little bit over their skis to the point where I can't make a good argument for it to continue going up. Does that mean that I'm going to miss a little bit more on the upside? Sure. But as I think I've said on here a few times, when things start to fall, it falls so fast, you cannot catch it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there is no sense in waiting too long. I want to go back to something that we were talking about in the commercial real estate market and, and kind of the pushback of, well, this is just natural cycle stuff. And let's distinguish because 
it's true. And, and we should try not to sound overly bearish about that, that, oh my gosh, something bad is happening and we're going to, you know, make it sensational. It's true that naturally in any cycle that does happen. The difference is you have to look at what the cause of the, whatever the event is. Sometimes it's unique to that company. Maybe it was poorly managed. Maybe it was concentrated in a certain sector. Maybe there was something else that was going on just at the company level that's causing things to fall apart. In this case, this is caused by rising rates. It's caused by the change in work habits, people not going back to offices, right? So then you have to sit back and say, those are pretty universal problems for an entire industry and it's going to affect other companies. That's where it makes it not a normal cycle mm -hmm. situation. And it starts to be something, I won't use the word contagious because I don't know that that's necessarily the case here, but it's a headwind that every company in that space is going to face. And that's what makes it more dire. Yeah. And so let's talk about banks. They're going to get um, out of the gate here with Q1 earnings. And I think obviously this is a huge focus, just kind of the commentary more than anything else. And if you think about like the KRE, which is the um, you know regional bank index from its highs in early February, it was right near 65 bucks. It sold off about 37% to its lows last month. Um, now it's at 43 bucks, 65 um, to 43. And we know that, you know, we're a lot of the damage was done and people think i think for the most part at least in that handful of banks that some of that stuff is a bit ring fence contained guy i'm just going to use that word i know that you love using that when we're talking about the potential for um financial crisis and if you look at the xlf sold off about 20 some percent it's up uh, a little bit from its recent lows here and so on friday morning we're gonna get jp morgan we're at wells fargo city um blackrock and so it's interesting to me what expectations are right now i know that people are hoping that they're going to hear a lot of sort of contained sort of commentary and again I, I don't think we're to learn too much i think one of the fears that um if you're like kind of bullish on the financial sector right here you, what you don't want to hear are um, you know, the idea of the cash return kind of being pulled back, that sort of thing, dividends and buybacks. Um, and that would sense, it would give us a sense that there's probably some trepidation about the not so distant future. Thoughts about these, because they're discounting a lot of bad news that we already know about, like, you know what I mean, as it relates to regionals, are we likely to see something about some larger institutions, let's say X the BX, you know, that's the Blackstone, but more in the money center and the lending space. And mm -hmm. obviously, you know, we've seen the housing market cool off. A, a great deal. So in, in residential. So these are all things that I think are going to be um, like like top of mind for most investors. So many things to talk about there. I mean, you've mentioned correctly, you've brought up insurance companies. They've obviously, so many of them, I don't want to say have fallen off a cliff, but a lot of these stocks were trading on or around all-time highs. A lot of them have had pretty precipitous drops over the last few weeks. I don't think that's coincidental. Obviously, I don't think the Charles Schwab story is necessarily over, although uh, the networks and the pundits seemingly have stopped talking about them for now, but it's not like that stock has gotten out of its own way. First Republic still trades terribly in a word. And XLF, I mean, that's the one. I think it's a poorly constructed ETF, you know, for my money. I think it's 12% Berkshire Hathaway, I think 10% JP Morgan, MasterCard and Visa, both probably another 8% each. So obviously heavily weighted towards those names. With that said, Dan, and I think this is worth pointing out. If you want to play Carter Worth, um, if you go back in February of 2020, before the world sort of went spiraling out of control on the back of COVID, XLF topped out around 31-ish, let's just call it, and then fell off a cliff. So that was past uh, resistance to the upside. Well, 
past resistance becomes support. And go back and look. This started in June of last year. We traded down to 31, bounced. Then again, we saw it in October of last year, traded down to 31 and bounced. Well, here we are. We're trading basically 31 and a half, 32. There's been no market bounce whatsoever over the last couple of weeks. And this, to me, could tell the tale. That with the KRE, throw the HYG in there. And you have a lot of things you want to be looking at. And in terms of banks, people will talk about banks being cheap on book value, uh, on terms of price to earnings, all those things. And that's true. The problem, of course, in my opinion, is the environment that they find themselves in and will find themselves in for the foreseeable future. That's more regulation, tighter credit standards, uh, less lending, I think worse net interest margin, all those things. I mean, it just does not lend itself. Uh, for these stocks to go precipitously higher. So I think there's a real good chance that banks sort of roll over on the back of earnings. And we're going to have an entirely different conversation over the next couple of weeks as to what it means for the broader market. Yeah, I think you have to be careful, especially careful here as an investor. Yes, banks have come down quite a bit for obvious reasons. And it's tempting to say that now they're a bargain. And this is a good entry point. And to Guy's point with where support is on the IYF. However, we're heading into earnings season. We know that banks are the first to report. I don't expect that the statements are going to be all that positive. And actually, I think the risk is probably more to the downside that we get even even worse cautionary statements than we were expecting. So I think we're all expecting regional banks to say things that we already know, right? We already know the pressures that they're under, and, and maybe those stocks have seen the pain that they were going to see in the market what I don't think we know exactly is what the big banks are going to say and what the ripple effect has been or maybe how they're adjusting their business models and their plans for the rest of the year because of what transpired in March. And I would not be trading banks. I would not be trading financials ahead of earnings. I think if you do see them fall off a cliff after earnings season is over, but I mean after the whole season yeah. is over, not just after banks are done reporting, then we can talk about some of the entry points. But I would wait this out. Yeah. So, uh, so a couple things here, Guy. You mentioned First Republic, and, and this was one that obviously a lot of investors focused on since the Silicon Valley Bank um, collapsed. The stock was trading 145 in early February and it's trading just below $14 right now. And it's kind of flatlined at this like kind of 1370 level, the headline over the weekend. I think it was, as Danny Moses would call, a Friday night dirty. Um, First Republic slides after suspending their preferred stock dividend. Okay, so this is really the, the, the buyback and the dividend thing. This is one of the things that we start to see the major money centers kind of raise their reserves and they kind of maybe hint to the potential for, um, you know, kind of lessening buybacks. That that would be the thing. I'll just say this about the banks. Um, you know, Jamie Dimon's annual letter was out last week. We talked about it a bit. Um, it seemed um, fairly well balanced, um, you know, especially for a guy who I think, you know, nine, 10 months ago was calling for an economic hurricane Maybe that's some of what we've seen for some of these regionals and what they're dealing with. You know, listen, is it a tough trade into the print? Yes. From a trading perspective, I think Liz is the way you're thinking about it is like be cautious. And if they get cream for no good reason, maybe there's some like unusually good yeah. values there. I would say if they run up into Friday and they're kind of trying to find a little bit of a bottom, if you were just to kind of look at the XLF right here, then I think as a trader, I would put them out. I am actually long some puts, actually weekly puts. This is a very binary trade and it's not something I would recommend um, mm -hmm. to most people, but mm -hmm. this is kind of how I trade. I want a little bit of exposure. I've been trading the XLF 
to the short side. To Guy's point, it's not a great constructed ETF. And I may look to kind of express that view. When you think about Visa and MasterCard, and then obviously Berkshire as maybe 20 or so percent, you know what I mean? Or actually 23%, not a great way to play um, bank weakness. So I may kind of roll that into the BKX. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers. Their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Let's talk about some stuff in tech because, Liz, you just mentioned the underperformance today on the Monday, right? You know, yields are ticking up a little bit. We know that some of these kind of higher valuation tech stocks are not liking that so much. But in the last week, we've had Samsung and Taiwan missed their sales guidance, talking about some production cuts in the memory space here. We're seeing Micron up 7% today, really digging that. Western Digital really digging that. So production cuts might mean upward pressure on pricing. Guy, talk to me a little bit about this because the backdrop of all this is that there's a report from IDC which tracks PC shipments showing that Apple's in Q1 were down 40%. Obviously, these are huge um uh, like end markets for memory right so you're seeing this kind of thread throughout the pc supply chain might we see it in the smartphone supply chain and we also have the fact that apple microsoft google amazon nvidia all of these guys kind of related here and the mega cap tech mm-hmm. trade they've been keeping this market elevated and we've been highlighting the concentration of those largest names here so as we're recording right now we have the nasdaq 100 down 1.3% the s&p down about 55 basis points so we're seeing underperformance for the nasdaq it's amazing how you know that news for apple in my opinion or those head whatever you want to call it yeah. i mean the stock's only down 2.5% maybe 2 and 3 quarters percent today I mean, that's having uh, the stock rally from that 125 or so low, I want to say, in early January to just short, Dan, I think of about 168. So it's not like it's cascading lower on the back of this. But if you start to think about it, I mean, why should Apple be impervious to all what's going on in the world? I mean, they shouldn't be, right? I mean, they make expensive products that people need to buy. Now, people talk about their install base and their 
move into medical and all these different things that can move the needle. I, I totally get it, but I think they've been rewarded for that in terms of valuation. So I don't know why the market seems to be at least discounting it to a certain extent. The Taiwan semi stuff, again, not insignificant. You talk about it all the time. I, I think you can make an argument that Taiwan semi is one of the 10 most important companies in the world. And you start to see some of the commentary out of them. By the way, a stock that had a nice bounce off the bottom uh, when they basically gave a tepid, if not miserable quarter, I want to say six or so months ago, maybe a little bit less than that. They talked about weakness in the first half of 2023, but they were going to make it up in the back half. And I remember saying on Fast Money and probably Market Call as well, I said they're buying themselves some time. They're probably buying themselves until about May, June, well, it's off by about a month or so. But the fact that they think they have clarity in an environment where nobody has clarity, I think is completely ludicrous if you think about it. And now you're starting to see that. So that second half guidance that they gave probably has to come into question. And when you're talking about, again, a company of that much importance, you can't just say, well, it's Taiwan semi-specific. I think it's more than that, Dan. All right. So, Liz, you're a strategist and, and you have um, a, a slightly different role as, let's say, some of your peers um, at big investment banks. Right. They speak to kind of different constituents in, in a way. Um, how much time do you spend focus on geopolitical headlines? Because this is tying into like over the weekend, I, there's Chinese that are running drills, you know, around Taiwan for a potential blockade. We're sending ships out there. You know, they're getting really close to, you know, Japan. And and this, I mean, you know, when you think about Taiwan Semi, you think about all of this kind of um, investment by U.S. multinationals, predominantly in the technology sector, and and how they've kind of created their supply chains and the reliance on manufacturing and the reason, and and then and then you throw in, you know, like some of the the efforts that our government is making about um, banning exports of advanced technology, right, to um, chip manufacturers. Like when you think about Taiwan Semi, and Guy just said it's probably one of the most ten important companies in the planet. No doubt about it, man. I mean, if there is some sort of dust up. Up, um, with Taiwan between China and 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 Macron from from France, supposedly one of our closest allies, is over there sipping tea with President Xi, you know, and and and, and doubting a little bit like our leadership in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I got to tell you, if you thought Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the disruption to the energy complex and 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 natural gas and, and the like was a big deal for the global economy last year. Just wait what a Chinese blockade of Taiwan would do for global supply chains, access to chips, and really just kind of like a further acceleration of this bipolar world that we are in with China. I mean, that could be devastating. I'm just curious, do you start to think about some of this stuff and does it make you, I guess, less optimistic about the near term and the higher probability of a global recession if there is some sort of dust up between China and Taiwan? Okay, so first of all, uh, usually you say lot there. Yeah, well, guy used that one oh, in, in your last sorry. question. That so was, am I that asking was five guys, minutes good, long? Put it really? No, I'm kidding. Well, so, so I mean, <laughs> listen, you know, if you, if you have some comments, you know, put it put it in the uh, in in the suggestion box here. If you, if Dan's asking too long a question, no, no, it's who, great. Who are you I'm talking to me, me and EY, or is that out to I, the no, audience? Do we here. have a suggestion no. box? I don't know. Just just email Amanda. Somebody, uh, somebody at You know. Okay, wait, but go. I I wanted to, I want to cover this because yeah. I do have a lot to say about okay, it. So um, last Monday, I was on a program called Halftime Report yeah, on CNBC. We, we do final trades. My final trade was to sell semiconductors. Whoa. And 
that was a very much macro call. The statements that I'm about to make now are macro calls. Obviously, there's unique things going on in certain companies, but the reason I made that call then was because obviously semiconductors have enjoyed this run up with tech, Mm -hmm. maybe even more so than many of the other industry groups. I think that that run up was largely rate driven. As rates came down, you saw things like semiconductors rise in the opposite direction. And semis are the cyclical component of tech. I believe that if we do confirm that the economy is in fact slowing, headed towards a recession, cyclicals are going to get hit harder than tech in general. Mm -hmm. However, semis being the cyclical component of tech, I think probably take it on the chin pretty hard. So that was the trade from last Monday to sell semiconductors ahead of uh, earnings season starting. That said, you're correct that my audience is different than a lot of the, the larger banks. They you know, have some institutional clients mixed in there, but they also do have some individual mm-hmm. clients that, that they speak to. Mine is all individual clients and, and individual clients that largely are not working with a financial advisor, mm-hmm. right? So the idea there is, yes, I think about it. Of course, I think about it very frequently. Rather than necessarily taking a stance geopolitically on what I think should, should not, or anything political about it, it's more about helping the individual investor understand how it all affects the market, right? Because I think it's easy as an investor sitting in the United States to think, oh, semiconductors, phones, whatever, all the things that we're familiar with and have a view about it from a U.S. consumer perspective, but not entirely understand how the, how the supply chain works through, how China can affect everything that happens here. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we haven't necessarily seen that occur yet, it's been sort of threatened and it's been uh, maybe something that we think about on the periphery, but it hasn't actually happened yet and stopped the supply of what we use. So it's the education of how that could affect not only prices in the market, but the availability of what's in your hand on a daily basis. Kyle Bass on Twitter. And if you don't follow Kyle Bass, you should forget about any ancillary political stuff. I mean, the guy is locked in and he's probably as well versed on China as anyone out there. His tweet, I want to say earlier today or maybe yesterday. So I apologize. Doesn't matter. It's timeless in terms of uh, what we're doing here. With Xi and the Communist Party of China effectively blockading the Taiwan Strait for the last 48 hours, deposits are flying out of the Hong Kong dollar and the Hong Kong banking system at large. Hong Kong dollar looks to have traded through the 40-year-old peg of 785 yet again. Geopolitics and rate differentials can't be much worse for those looking for stability in an unstable middling kingdom. Buckle up, his words, not mine. So that's out there. And then, you know, we talk about this all the time, and I don't think there's a high probability of this happening, but there is an absolute probability of this happening somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. If China were to do something in terms of uh, escalating this aggression, what is Apple going to do? Because Apple pulled out of Russia. That wasn't a big deal for them. McDonald's did it as well. Starbucks did it because it didn't move the needle and they needed to do it. But if the same type of situation were to happen between China and Hong Kong, that almost forces their hand giving the precedent that they set. So ask yourself then how the market's going to react to that. And if you don't think that's out there, you're just putting your head in the sand or not paying attention. To well, it. you know what? The irony is Tim Cook was just over there. Um, you know, Tim Cook, and I said this on Fast Money the other night, and I got a lot of hate 
all about it. Um, I said history is not going to look too favorably, I think, on on people like Tim Cook and Elon Musk, for that matter, who, you know, you know, Tim Cook, a social warrior here in the U.S., but really does everything in his power not to address um, this totalitarian regime in China, probably the most totalitarian regime on our planet and and how the workers are treated um, at the factories that make our iPhones and, and all that sort of stuff. And he's been very mum uh, about, you know, the, the treatment of the Uyghurs. Um, you know, this is an ethnic group that is is very clearly um, persecuted over there. And then you have Elon Musk, um, you know, again, who who is this free speech warrior. He bought Twitter in the name of um, free speech, supposedly. I think he's a massive hypocrite. And, 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 you know, he's over there cozying up to the Chinese because he needs their consumer demand. He needs their manufacturing. He needs access to the rare earth materials. And most of their expected future growth is expected to come from China. So like this is a huge issue. And I want to go back to Kyle Bass's Twitter guy. I don't know if you saw this. This is a tweet from April 6th, okay? And Kyle Bass tweeted, in an interesting twist of potential censorship, Twitter would not allow this tweet to be sent after several attempts. So here's a photo of it in my drafts. And here is what the tweet was. This is exactly how China plans to uh, to ratchet up uh, against Taiwan. Taiwan is only about uh, 14 days uh, of its energy needs and storage. And it's, so, so basically, he's talking about um, the potential for a blockade. And he's saying, Kyle Bass, that Twitter would not allow him to tweet this in the U.S. So when you talk about censorship, you talk about Elon Musk. He's a massive freaking hypocrite, okay, because he bought this thing supposedly in the name of uh, free speech. Okay. But he can't on his platform have too much of this stuff going out there because he's heading over to Shanghai to announce a new gigafactory and he needs to cozy up to the Chinese. So again, massive hypocrite. You can tell me I'm wrong. I'm just fucking not okay here on this one. Whoa. Right. And, then, and then the last one I just want to say is that for all these people and all the hate that we get, Danny, Guy, and myself, uh, less so Guy, because I think Guy is fair and balanced when it comes to the Tesla here. You know, what, you know what's interesting when you say that, that would be a great um, yeah. tagline for like a business net or a news, like a news network. A news, a news network or something that's that's basically not fair, fair and balanced. balanced. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but when you think about Tesla, right. they just announced, I think Danny would also call this a Friday Night Dirty over the weekend. They just cut prices again. The fourth on, time this year. Right? I, I mean, like. Yeah. So, so when you think about what's going on with Tesla here, um, we talked about the margins, you know, last year, 25.6% uh, gross margin expected to be 22% this year with all these price cuts. I would suspect that even after those Q1 deliveries, which were up 4% quarter over quarter, this is not going to be pretty. Whatever they report, guys, I mean, you guys have at it, okay? Be excited about it. Margins, um, I think Morgan Stanley was out, guy, talking about margins. They'd be lucky to do 20% this year. If this was a margin story in a declining, you know, more competitive um, environment, um, I just don't see it, yeah. man. So to me, I'm still, you know, short of the thing. I think we're going to fill in that gap from January. It was their earnings gap back towards 150. And then who knows? Like all bets are off because if we have a global recession this year, think about the demand for these sorts of vehicles at the price point that they are. They can't lower prices fast enough to kind of compete with all of these guys. So thoughts there, guy. A lot, a lot to take in there. That's the third time we've said it now. Um <laughs> Not, not, I'm not an apologist you know, for I want to be really clear about this. For all of you people who think that, that like, this is not a Q&A. This is not being concise about your question. This is a conversation. Yeah. So I'm kind of getting my You're two cents up. out. 
And then I'm ending it with some questions here. So it's not like I'm just like limited to like 30 second questions here. Isn't that the way this thing works here, guy? Yeah. Did, did we say yeah, otherwise? I, All I said was there's a lot well, to unravel. Like there's there. growing <laughs> tension about the length of my questions. <laughs> no, I'm not tense. So I, I enjoy it. <laughs> I'm quite relaxed. I, I'm extraordinarily relaxed. So as I said, I, I'm not a Tesla apologist, but I will tell you, I think it was in the fall of last year that they said margins are going to start to come down. And they mentioned that the legacy OEMs, the Fords and the GMs, I think their margins are about 16% or so. And what they said was, look, we don't think it's going to get that low, but we're going to start to drift down to those levels. So I think to a certain extent, at least this should be expected, but it doesn't make it good. And four price cuts in a year in a year that we've just made it to April is not particularly good. I can do that math over the course of the year, how many that would be. On top of which, you know, the stock did trade down to 165. The bounce was pretty significant, but we failed to get up to the levels that we topped out earlier this year, which I think was 218. So you now you have a two, at least a series of lower highs. Let's put it out there. And no, the stock does not trade particularly well. And no, they're not immune to all of this. And one has to wonder what the market will do if, in fact, something happens between uh, China and Taiwan, Dan Nathan. Also, forgive me for stating the obvious here, but for anybody listening who hears four price cuts in a year or hears things like home prices are down or whatever the, the price cutting that's going on and thinks to themselves, well, that's good because if inflation is the problem, that brings down inflation. Well, why are they cutting prices? Why are home prices coming down? Because there aren't buyers that are willing to pay it. And Yes, that brings inflation down, but a thing that is out there to be purchased is only worth as much as somebody's willing to pay for it. And if they're not willing to pay more for it, that means that the consumer that we've all kind of hung our hat on as being so strong and spendy and buying whatever it is, no matter what the price increases are, that means it's slowing down yeah. and the demand just isn't there. Well, and, and to tie this whole last bit together, because we started talking about semiconductors and, and the potential geopolitical impacts of not just, you know, some sort of dust up with Taiwan, but also just the ban of our advanced chips and that sort of thing. Think back to all the issues that we had with consumer electronics during the pandemic because we, because fabs were shut down. There wasn't mm -hmm. enough chips mm -hmm. being made, right? And so then you think about what happened there. We had, you would you could drive around and you could go look at car lots, right? Like, and they just didn't have any inventory. Mm -hmm. Drive around right now. They are full with inventory at a time where it's much more expensive to get a loan to buy a new car. All right. So like when you think about, you know, some of these higher priced EVs, you know, like it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then if you go back to semis and if we ever had um, some sort of issue with supply of semis, we could be right back in the situation where you see all this double ordering for semis and it's going to be harder to track. But again, to your point about these being very cyclical in nature, um, that's one of the reasons why I think the semiconductor index right here is, is a good short, like your halftime report, final trade. I'm sure you showed up all the SDs on the IC <laughs> that day with that final call. Wouldn't you say so there, guy? I, I, you know my view on that fine program, noon Eastern time. I, I love the program. I love Scott Wapner. I love what he does with it there. All right. So Can guys, we talk about what's happening this week. There's a lot happening this week. Okay. So what's we have a few at? minutes left. So we have CPI. Do you, like, so Liz, yeah. you know, we're all in agreement that that backward looking jobs report um, not going to be that impactful, despite right. the fact that the CME Fed funds um, tracker for the May meeting is is got ticking up right since yep. then. CPI, how important is it going to be a tradable event, or is it going to be a market moving event? I think it it definitely could be a tradable event. It happens on the twelfth. That happens on Wednesday, so that's really kind of before earnings season kicks into high gear. We also get PPI this week, and we get retail sales. So we're going to get 
a lot of reads uh, on the consumer, what's affecting the consumer, how the consumer has behaved. And then we're getting PPI, which is basically businesses and what they're paying uh, in order to produce their stuff. We're also going to get capacity utilization. There's a lot of data coming in mm-hmm. this week. That's a good read on the economy. It's a good read on the consumer. And it's right in the front of when we start to hear Q1 earnings. And I said also on halftime last Monday, besides the short semi-trade, I thought last week would be kind of a quiet week in the market. It wasn't as quiet as I expected, but I did expect this week to be volatile because of all the data that's coming in because of earnings. And just because I think we're sort of, we had this like calm before the storm of this expected wave of, of information. I don't know who this Cliff guy is. We used to get his notes back in high school. I'm sure he was brilliant. <laughs> but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of this week because EY knows this far better than I. But I have posited that CPI, again, my opinion, is linked to inflation. PPI is linked to the economy. So you could actually see CPI rise and it be a bad thing vis-a-vis inflation and PPI go down and actually be a bad thing because it's linked to the economy. So do not, in my again, just my opinion, if you see a um, weak or soft PPI, do not equate that with somehow the Fed's job is over or whatever. It's just the normal course of events. The economy can slow. Prices can continue to go higher. And that ain't a good uh, recipe, Dan Nathan. That's something that yeah. I call a witch's brew and Danny Moses calls uh, stagflation, I believe. Yeah. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground here. So the data is going to be important. We also have the Fed minutes on Wednesday. Um, and then we have the um, bank earnings um, on Friday. My take there, any rally into that, I think you want to sell them. I think they will make new lows in Q2, but I don't think it's a great press right here, right now. Um, and then the other thing is we can all agree that uh, Elon Musk is a massive hypocrite. Um, <laughs> that's one thing. I just want to say this because I just went to his Twitter that he tried to um, rename Titter over the weekend. Did you see this thing? I mean, like li- li- literally, this is what this guy is engaged in doing and then the other thing is he just changed his name his handle to his 134 million followers is still at elon musk but he changed his name to harry um b-o-l-z um how would you pronounce an o with like a thing a line over it because bowls okay so his new name on twitter is harry bowls i think is how you pronounce it so um hypocrite and really bad sense of humor. And especially for a guy like me, remember last week guy on April fools, I played a little joke, uh, you know, in my Twitter account and they just shut it down. Yeah. So, um, you know what, have at it, dude, I, I'm going to be honest with you. This thing, this, this thing with him going to kind of end in tears, but it is what it is. We're gonna have to wait a little bit. All right. Liz young EY from SoFi. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Liz will be on market call with guy tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's right. Then she will be back with Guy and me on Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Oh, Oh, (laughs) look at that. And you know who else is on Thursday, Guy? We just call him hashtag what? Hashtag what? Butters. Not even a hashtag. He doesn't even need a freaking hashtag. It's just butters. The Pavlovian response we get in the comments to him, it's amazing. Yeah, so I don't Butters know who this is. He's probably Wednesday. Russian, like a scientist or something. Butters is on Wednesday. Oh, thank you. Butters is on yeah. Wednesday. So he's not. It doesn't matter. It's still Butters. <laughs> but just tune in. Listen, go to the Risk Reversal Media <laughs> YouTube site. Watch Market Call. Watch one, it all. What, at 1 p.m. Eastern. And all, and another thing, um, on we put our first on the tape 
This is going to be on our Risk Versal Media uh, YouTube page, but we put with Mike Wilson. He's a CIO and head strategist at Morgan Stanley. That dropped on Friday. It's in the YouTube store if you prefer to watch the video or you can listen to it mm. in your favorite podcast store. Guy Dami, thanks a lot. Check us out on Market Call. Check Liz out twice this week. <laughs> oh, Wait geez. a second. Is she you going to be on the... Um, you're gonna be part of the IC on the on the no, on not the this H, week. No, no, no I HR will be on the, the closing bell program. Oh, nice! I love that. Yeah, okay, we'll tune in. All right, thanks everybody for joining us on a Monday. Um, hopefully, uh, you guys, uh, you know, we didn't offend too much. Did we offend too much? Maybe just me on the on the Harry Bowles thing. That's him. I'm That's gonna, not me. I'm it's no just him. No, no comment. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you later this week. Bye. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.